welcome to the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast. I am your host, Adam Comero, as usual, and we are recording the night after Duke beat uh, Pitt in Jeff Capel's first game back at uh, Cameron Indoor. Duke wins 79-67. It was actually a little bit closer than the final score would lead you to believe. There was uh, some skipped heartbeats, I would assume. And uh, right now, I have Andy Clark joining me. He's someone who uh, I have a, uh, a bittersweet relationship with Twitter at times, but he was kind enough to, uh, on Twitter, volunteer to join me today, possibly in the future. And just to uh, remind everyone that I am looking for a permanent co-host at, on this podcast. I don't set the bar high, but whatever you are willing I would appreciate, and who knows, if you are motivated, then we could really bring this pod to the next level. That goes for Andy and whoever else. So, Andy, thanks so much for joining me. And uh, what were just a couple of initial takeaways you had from last night's Duke victory over Pitt? Um, I would say, well, first off, thanks for having me on. It's good to be on. I've been a fan of the pod. Um, I'd say initially my first reaction was just, just kind of how that game definitely demonstrated a lot of the problems Duke has had in the past. Um, just as far as shortening the bench, um, lack of offensive movement, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then the second half, I just highlight Jack White for sure. I think that just that might have gotten very, very dangerous. Yeah, I mean, Jack White, you're, uh, he's always been my alpha glue guy, so – Absolutely. He always deserves props. He will do the things that don't necessarily, they may at times, but they don't won't necessarily always show up on the box score. So yeah, I mean, Pitt, they are a team that, I mean, they have Jeff Capel's attitude. It was, he, the announcers were talking about how in his first trip back to Cameron, he, he was, uh, remembering his days at Duke and say, and said how he came to Duke and Duke was on top of the country. They were a final four team. And then those a couple years in between, where his uh, sophomore and junior year is not so good. So he, he set a goal when he left. He wanted Duke to be either on top or at least rising back up. And if you look at his last couple games in the NCAA tournament, I believe that was in 1997, I mean, he balled out. I mean, Rashawn McLeod was the leader of that team, but Capel went off in those final two games. Unfortunately, Providence just uh, they kind of laid the smack down on Duke in the second half. It was one of those games where the opponent just scores like a million points in the second half and wears Duke down. But still, Capel left on the highest note possible individually, and the team was really, really set to kind of rise to the next level, as they would show in uh, 98 and obviously 99, 2000, 2001, and so on. So it was good to have uh, Capel back. Before we talk about the specifics, a couple quick things. Uh, I'm, I'm not sure. I would say probably I'm not going to record after Duke plays at Syracuse, but who knows? Maybe. I mean, hopefully they will not lose. But, uh, I mean, if they do, I mean, obviously there's going to be some stuff to talk about. Hopefully it's a nice, easy, breezy victory, kind of like Miami, where I don't feel any sort of need to record. But if Duke uh, beats Cuse and then Boston College before uh, – Carolina, I don't care what the record is. It's Duke Carolina, and then the Saturday-Monday matchup, they'll play FSU. So right now, Coach K has 498 ACC wins. That's regular season and the tournament together. So if uh, they beat Syracuse, I would think 
that's going to be a big talking point headed into Boston College. And I don't, I mean, I don't want to take anything for granted, but hopefully they won't have any uh, problem with Boston College. So if I don't record after Syracuse, just know that uh, he will be going for ACC win number 500 against Boston College. Uh, Another big thing, Wendell Moore, the cast is off. And that's great. I mean, when he initially got injured and I looked at, uh, I, I pretended I was a doctor. I'm not a doctor, but I did say at Holiday Inn Express last night. When the diagnosis came, I mean, I believe it said like a four to six injury, four to six week injury thing, or it might have even been six to eight weeks. I'm, I'm not sure, but I kind of, I hoped for just kind of the safe side. I think I was like NC State, the second game before, the second time they play NC State before Carolina. And from what I've heard, there is a chance he could play versus Syracuse. I wouldn't say guaranteed. Who knows? I have no sources that would that are telling me anything, but that would be really cool. And I hope once he is back, if he is back, just kind of take it slow. I hope he doesn't like rush himself in terms of trying to get up to speed. Obviously, Duke hasn't rushed him back, but at the same time, when he gets in there, take your time kind of readjusting because – Obviously, being in shape is very different from being in game shape. But either way, I think uh, in some ways people have uh, some have lionized Wendell Moore in the same way they did with uh, Trey Jones. When Trey got hurt last season versus Syracuse, is right after the that first half where he, I think he had like five steals versus Syracuse, and everyone acted like he was God. And if he hadn't gotten injured, Duke would go undefeated and beat every team by a million. And then he came back, and obviously that didn't happen. So Wendell Moore, I think the same kind of thing, like absence makes the heart grow fonder. Wendell had struggles. I've always been huge on his game, really high. But at the same time, he does have weaknesses. But I think with him out, you've kind of seen where his absence could fill in, especially on defense. So I'm really excited to potentially have him back, if not Syracuse, maybe Boston College. If not Boston College, maybe Carolina. But either way, it's great to hear everything's gone well. And like I said, his cast is off. And uh, from what I heard and read, he was shooting in warm-up. So everything is good to go outside of actually playing in a game. Um, so, uh, Andy, um, how, how do you feel Wendell can possibly impact Duke? Not necessarily immediately, but just overall as the season kind of moves forward. Well, I think at the bare minimum, he just gives you another guy that I just don't imagine Coach K benching and limiting our total men to six during a game that essentially that kind of happened last night. Um, So that at least gives you one guy that you assume will always have a good amount of. Then from a game perspective, offensively, he just gives you that another possible option to potentially score off a dribble drive and break down a defense that way. And then defensively, just the versatility he offers, like you've said, he could really play one through four and just a ton of versatility there. And I think a major thing is uh, the defensive switching um, with the front court. And I think, well, that will never be completely fixed, especially within one season, especially. I mean, there's a reason freshman bigs, they rarely are, you rarely see it, to be honest. And I mean, it's the reason Duke was really – they really had to go de- uh, uh, zone defense with uh, Wendell Carter and Marvin Bagley. Like, it's just – it's so – you can't really explain how hard it is to immediately come in there and understand team defense and everything involved with it. It's not just kind of like on offense. You can just give somebody the ball and say, go get a bucket. You really need 
to uh, work together. It's a symbiotic uh, act in team defense. So there's been obvious problems with Hurt and Carey in terms of them getting stuck in no man's land and issues with teams just really clearing out and attacking them. And that's why Jack White, among the many things he does well, he just – you. You can trust where he'll be on defense, and you can kind of make up a little bit for them, but not like Wendell Moore. When, uh, Wendell Moore will stalk the passing lanes. He can physically match up with a lot of these guys. He may not have the height, or uh, but, I mean, the bulk, he actually, uh, I think he does have the bulk to do against a lot of these guys, and he has the quickness. So, uh, yeah, he can kind of be that pseudo uh, playmaking, uh, not, not a point guard, but somebody who can initiate the offense even well, I think uh, we were hoping. I mean, it still needs to kind of uh, tighten up that dribble a lot and work on finishing at the rim. And the shot mechanics are a little untrustworthy. But at the same time, I mean, having him back would be, as you said, another guy, and another versatile guy, because you never know what kind of lineups K is going to use. And I think K was really beginning to trust Wendell Moore, and we were starting to see the potential of what he could do. Right now, Duke is 2-1 versus the ACC top seven and 5-1 and versus the ACC bottom seven. They have uh, five games remaining in the ACC versus the top seven, six games remaining versus the bottom seven. But of those six games, two of them are against Carolina. And as I mentioned, the Carolina throw the records out the window. Like, forget about that. As weird as the ACC is this season or college basketball altogether, I mean, you, you got to beat who's in front of you. And uh, Virginia, they actually had a big win against Florida State, so maybe that helped them. Because if Virginia had lost and they kept on losing, I mean, the ACC, there was a potential. You could be looking at, like, three teams, which is wild. Jeff Capel, as I said, first game back, it kind of reminded me of what made me so excited about uh, when uh, Capel was filling in for K one game against Georgia Tech in 2016. He... Derek Thornton, he wasn't really getting much action as the point guard, and Capel came in, and like that was surely the only, one of the only games after the 2K Classic where Thornton looked like a real point guard because he was getting real point guard action. He wasn't uh, kind of getting the red light whenever he tried to push, and it just he looked like a totally different player with more confidence. And I kind of saw the same thing. I mean, Pitt, that team can't shoot at all. And yet they were creating action. They were uh, they were they were making positive plays in half court offense, even despite their limitations. I mean, people worry about Duke how they shoot outside Pitt. I mean, they are they can be a train wreck at times. Even I mean, Murphy's really the only guy, and he was pretty much locked down. He didn't do anything, so they didn't have any trustworthy player who can shoot from outside. But bottom line. They found a way, and I really liked uh, Capel's creativity. I've said it many times. I think they have a really, really bright future under Capel, and that's without any sort of bias. Player of the game for Duke, I don't think there's any question. It is Vernon Carey. Everything was centered around Vernon Carey. Everything will continue to be centered around Vernon Carey. Yeah, I mean, Pitt's entire game plan was based on him, as many game plans are, but I thought he did a good job adjusting and I'll, I'll explain exactly how he did that in a little bit. But he is uh, my player of the game. Uh, the key plays of the game, I would say uh, with the struggles that Duke had gone through, I mean, these big chunks when they can't score, they finally got it together with 4-14. Here's, I mean, talk about a bold move. Vern high-low bounce pass into Hurt, who's fouled and makes a pair. Like, when you think about it, if it's a, if it's a tight game, 
what do you think that uh, going inside to Matthew Hurt in the post, where would that rank as the possibilities of what you think Duke would uh, prefer to run a set play for? Coming into that game, did you think that would be high up? Um, definitely not super high up, especially when you consider just how bad our entry passes have been as well. That's always something frightening. You kind of hold your breath every time we try to um, – I know they have used Hurt in the post a lot based off matchups, but definitely coming down the stretch in kind of a critical moment of the game, I would not have expected that to be the play that was run. Yeah, I mean, against uh, certain teams, against kind of teams, the teams without as much height and physicality and athleticism, yeah, Hurt can be a matchup problem. But a Pitt, while they were very undersized against uh, Duke and they didn't have – that kind of uh, versatile power forward who could get, who typically gives Hurt problems, I was still shocked that that was the play. And, hey, props to Hurt. He, he, uh, I, don't, I don't necessarily know if he drew the foul or Pitt just kind of committed it. Uh, just He was real close to the basket. But good for him about getting good position, bottom line. Props where props is due. So, uh, yeah, that, that was big right there because before that, I mean, it had pretty much been – all Vern, nothing but Vern in initial half-court offense. They were getting nothing in transition, so it was just going down there and chucking up threes if it wasn't Vernon Carey. He was everything, and it kind of reminds you of how they lost to Louisville when Vernon Carey wasn't in the lineup. And if uh, anyone didn't know, I, I kind of I posted on Twitter, but um, I, I, I really there was no way for me to get the message out in terms of the podcast world where I know more people listen that I actually posted a bunch of stats after recording the Louisville pod. I didn't actually post the stats on Twitter. I just posted an announcement saying that I had posted the stats on the podcast description so everyone can see that in the podcast description of the Louisville episode. And I also had a link to... A, a video where I collected a bunch of uh, defensive plays together in the last 10 minutes representing how Louisville attacked Vern and Hurt over and over and over. The differential with, with, Vern, with Vern and Carey on the court compared to off in the second half, as well as the splits with him and Matthew Hurt, and just how odd it was that Kay choose, chose to go without Vernon Carey much more with Matthew Hurt against Louisville. And, I mean, that, you could argue, was the difference. So now you kind of uh, move back to uh, Pittsburgh, and you can see, I mean, Vern, I mean, whether he scores or not, whether he gets the shot or not, he affects everything. And it's just so important to have him in there. Yeah, so Hurt, uh, he made made a pair at the line. Then the following possession on defense, Cassius locked down Tony. And Cassius had some issues, which I'll mention, but that was big right there when it came down to you got to stop a dude. He stopped him. Vern hit a baseline J. Cassius rising fire in Tony's eye to hit a three-pointer. Jack White block on McGowan's. That was the kind of that that stretch. I mean, it sounds really obvious to say that, but still – to that point, there had been nothing going on. There had been no exciting plays. It would just been dump it into Vern and hope something works out. So you saw kind of a mix of guys really making plays, and that's what it's got to be. It can't just be Vern. He will be the centerpiece of Duke, but at the same time, other guys got to get involved. you, you got to work to involve them, or they got to do more to get involved. Uh, possibly under the radar matchup of uh, Duke Pitt, Jordan Goldwire. 
everyone knows Jordan Goldwire. I mean, he, he, he can be a lockdown defender. Off ball, he has a tendency to lose his man at times. But uh, Trey McGowan's, that, that dude can ball. And Goldwire locked him down. I'm not sure really how many noticed that. He was really impressive on uh, McGowan's. At the same time, McGowan's, if you look three out of the last four games, he's kind of been objectively awful. I think uh, he went like one of ten against Carolina. He went like one for eight in, a, in a, the game after or something like that. But at the same time, really talented player, good for Goldwire. All right, so here is the major thing of why you should be worried. And I apologize if I'm pronouncing this incorrectly. Karim Koulibaly. He was taking Vernon Carey ISO multiple times and drawing fouls down the stretch. Duke was fortunate that he missed those. But, I mean, I was thinking to myself, like, who is this guy? And then I looked at his game log, and I'm like, yeah, that makes sense why I didn't know who he was. His game log is pretty much... I mean, this is wild. I mean, going in, I mean, his points this season, 00424-0019-00008 against Duke. I mean, his minutes played, he had double digits in one, two, three, four, five games, uh, single digits in one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, in eight games, didn't play in a couple of others, and then he played 35 minutes versus Duke. Why? Because he, Because, I mean, he can be... I don't think they have a real versatile big. So he could at least put the ball on the floor. And if you can do that, you can give Vernon Carey trouble. If you can kind of force Carey to uh, away from the rim, that's what Duke wants to avoid. They want him next to the rim. They want him as a rim protector. And he was able to bring Carey away from the rim. So the fact that he was able to give Carey trouble, this guy that nobody had really heard from, that I would say is a little bit worrisome. All right, so, uh, but let's go, just let's go down the pluses. Big plus for me, Vern's passing out of the post. I still think he does have uh, a lot of trouble with his back um, to uh, where he's going to pass or whether he's passing from the side, but if he can face up, he's really, really impressive at uh, making quick decisions, finding his man. He passes over the head a lot. Uh, if some, if, if action is being created, if guys are moving, he'll find them. It's just when his back is to the basket, then he struggles a bit more. But I was uh, I, I was really impressed, to be honest, with uh, with Carey's passing. And so his uh, four assists were career highs, offensive rebounds most since the 2K Classic. And it was huge. I mean, getting Duke's constipated offense, second chance opportunities. His uh, 13 total rebounds, second most of the season, first of 2020. Um, he had a stretch of seven straight double-doubles from Central Arkansas through Michigan State. But after that, uh, after playing, really didn't play the second half against Virginia Tech, then had one more double-double against Wofford, that's it. As I said, this is his first double-double uh, of 2020 and his first ACC double-double. It is relevant, as I mentioned, to point out Pitt is extremely undersized, though. So, uh in terms of his passing, um, I, I mean, here, Vern finds Goldwire low early in the first half after taking a dribble and getting doubled. He sees Goldwire as he's fading back. Great pass. Goldwire, I feel like he should have used uh, the rim as protection and gone underneath um, for a reverse. Goldwire was blocked on that. But uh, another one, a hard dribble from the baseline kicks out to Hurt. Hurt actually lost control, but it was a perfect kick out to Hurt. This is, again, in the first half. And the ball eventually went to Trey, who kicks out again, this time to Jack White, who hit a three. 
But then uh, even at the end of the first half, quick pass from Hurt uh, to Hurt uh, from above the break at the end of the first half. 6.15 at the second half. Hard move into the lane. Um, left to right finds Cassius cutting to the rim at 16.15 at the second half. Second half, five minutes left out to Cassius for three. He's making great decisions, really. But the opposite of that, with 7.10 left, he made a pass out of the post with his back turn. Even before he commits the turnover later in the same possession, he kind of, it was really a lame duck floater, which Jack White had to run in and grab with momentum. So as I have repeated on many podcasts, what he's saying and what Coach K is saying, that he's learning how to play in the post, it's going to take time. But I think uh, it's really relevant to recognize how his passing has improved because you, you look at it and uh, the Ver- Vern's non-conference games with multiple assists, only one of 11 non-conference games. And the only one was versus Brown, Duke's last non-conference game. How many ACC games has Vern had multiple assists? Six of nine. And there's a, bu- there's a bunch of plays that, where guys are just, they're not making shots or they're not making the right play. He could have more. I'm, I'm really impressed with how he's improved his passing. I think that's huge for Duke, especially with the way their offense is unfortunately run at times. All right, so another uh, big plus, Cash is just never being afraid of the big moment. I think that's something it's impossible to really say with stats. I mean, last time I checked, even his, uh, his shooting under uh, Synergy keeps track with under four seconds left. Uh, their shots, I think he's like one of 10 this season. I think he's the type of guy that you can just ignore that. He he doesn't mind taking it. He wants to take it. And I think he's really learning that he is going to be the guy who takes it. And he, and he said that Coach K really put that sense of belief in him because Cassius can be hard on himself. And K just told him during the game, keep on shooting. Don't worry. And that's something which you can't take lightly because there's other guys, cough, cough, Joey Baker, which unfortunately doesn't get seem to get that same kind of uh, enthusiasm from Kay. Maybe he does, and maybe he just gets benched anyway. But uh, I thought that that was big because a guy like Cassius, that dog on Duke, he he needs to hear that what he's doing is is the right thing in terms of being aggressive. An aggressive Cassius on offense is exactly what you want. Uh, another uh, positive, we scroll down. All right, Jack White, another Alpha Glue Guy performance. We already talked about that. Jack White, love him. Uh, Trey, his assist to turnover ratio, crazy stat. The seventh career game with seven plus assists, no turnovers. And the next most amount of times recording that stat in a game have been by three Duke point guards who each did it four times. Can you, uh, if, I, if I asked you to take a guess, what three Duke point guards, do you think, recorded that stat of four games with seven-plus assists and no turnovers? I will say, I'm not trying to trick you. It is exactly the three point guards you would probably think. Um, I mean, that's got to be Amaker, Hurley. Um... Okay, remember, Jay Will, Jay Will turned it over a lot, so it's not going to be him. Um, outside of him. Okay, it's uh, Steve Woja. So we got uh, Amaker, Bobby Hurley, and Steve Wojo. So very limited amount. I mean, in just a season and a half, he's he's done it three more times. Props to him. Uh, another plus, Goldwire. Was it for his three first half made three-pointers, which equaled his entire total from 2018-2019? No. Off-ball cutting to the rim in the first half. Wish it had been in both halves, but... 
even so, his first half cutting the rim was really impressive, especially when you think about a team, your opponent's game plan um, with their defense is to push Carey out as much as possible, to force him to receive the ball as far out as possible and getting double lots. So what's going, what's that going to lead to? It leads to an open lane where for guys to just cut right to the rim. I have mentioned so many times how the coaches need to be accountable for running vanilla offense. At the same time, guys, they have the freedom to be able to work within that offense and react to it and make cuts, read and react. I mean, that's what it's about. And Goldwire did a fantastic job. I mean, Cassius is always moving. I just think the defense is more focused on him, so it's tougher for him to get free. But Goldwire, he made some great cuts to the rim, so props to him for creating action. I mean, that's something that Alex O'Connell, you could always count on him to do, and you can count on him to do. It's just his defense. You just you can't count on that. All right, so uh, props to a Matthew Hurd drawing a foul on a drive. I mean, that uh, I mentioned the post. This, this, was, uh, this was a different one. This was in the first half where he actually drove to the rim and drew a foul, and I almost died. Like, I, I, I was so shocked. So he, And then he missed both free throws. So, I mean, that's kind of Matthew Hurt. But uh, in the same way, his first free throws in ACC competition were getting fouled on a three. I was like, you know, it, that's like the most Matthew Hurt thing ever. But uh, he made those, and then he missed when, when, I, when he's being aggressive. But at the same time, keep it up. I like that mentality. I really do. There was another play in the second half when he drove, and he was just wildly off balance. Somehow managed to stop without traveling, and he, and he kind of... He dished to, I believe, don't quote me on this, but it was Vernon Carey. Great assist there. So, hey, a little playmaking from Matthew. I mean, I say he's just so raw that whatever he can bring other than three-point uh, three shooting, I guess, props to him. I mean, he's still, he can give you that. He has, I've mentioned his instincts with offensive rebounding. I really like that. He showed some of that. That's not surprising. But anything else he does besides uh, uh, spot-up threes and offensive rebounds, Good for him. Then uh, K understanding, these are still positives. K understanding Hurt's limitations on D, so doing a good job of subbing offense for defense and in reverse down the stretch with Hurt and Goldwire. That's something I don't think we saw enough of against Louisville. He kind of just stuck with uh, the same lineups, whatever whatever he's going with offense, kind of stuck with on defense. So I liked how he was subbing offense for defense. At the same time, I mean, it was still which I'll mention it was only six guys. The rotation was only six, but at least he was working within that and kind of playing to the strengths of his team rather than kind of forcing the team to play whatever he wanted. I mean, if a guy, if he's lacking on with defensive skill, he's not going to all of a sudden, you can't expect him to make the defensive player of the game. So it was good to see more hurt on, on offense, more uh, gold wire on defense down the stretch. Uh, Pitt, I'm going to talk about this more after, uh, probably record after BC. In terms of that'll be around the time, I guess one game after, but uh, halfway through the ACC season. Duke's defensive three-point rate is absurd. Like, it is absurd, and it deserves credit. I mean, the free-throw rate also. I mean, teams really are not getting to the free-throw line much about them, but it is... It, it, re- it really is wild how the three-point rate, the national average is 37.6. 37.6% of uh, teams' field goals uh, are, are three-pointers. Duke, they average 27. 
Teams shoot uh, 27% of their of their field goals from deep. And, I mean, very uh, – what would I say the national rate was? I said 37.6. There's only been one, two, two games which they've allowed more than national average. Most often they're way below that. And if you look at, like, the teams uh, uh, that are ranked higher than them, they're ranked fifth in the country, it's because those teams – those are teams that like opponents can just attack down low. So there's a reason why they're not shooting threes against those types of teams. But Duke, you can't just attack Duke down low. So Duke is just however you want to. I mean, you can't skew the stat in any way except that's awesome by Duke. They're just not even allowing teams to shoot many threes at all. And I think that has a lot to do with the quickness and the anticipation of the three guards they're playing a lot with. In terms of uh, Goldwire, Cassius, and Trey, I mean, I've, I'm still sticking with Cassius and Trey, best backcourt uh, in the K era, and uh, even that's even despite what I'll mention about Cassius is uh, at times lacking defense against uh, Pittsburgh. And uh, all right, let me. Is there anything I've said which you want to kind of add a thought to, um, or you you have you have something you want to disagree with, or something you do agree with? Anything, any subject I mentioned, which uh, maybe you have uh, some that. I think that last part, just about the three point, the defensive three point rate. Um, I just think that's obviously a very impressive stat, and it's a very good one to have come tournament time. Just because we've all seen teams aim lose just because the other team gets so hot from three, and that it's hard to imagine that being a problem for Duke, as all is they could be upset. It's Pretty much a certainty that won't be the way that it happens. Play-by-play broadcaster Mike Cousins, shout out to him. He used the phrase adjudicate that brouhaha after Jack White's offensive rebound, and there was some verbal back and forth there. And what I like to say is that is a play-by-play broadcaster heat check right there. Anyone who has the balls to say adjudicate that brouhaha, props to him. I actually tweeted him that. I gave him props. Much deserved. Oh, yeah. I will start out with the minus. I, I hate to even bring it up. Because I know there's nothing, it's really weird, nothing fans love more, or a lot of fans love more, than just ripping broadcasters, ripping the media, ripping everyone. But I have to say, Jordan Cornette, I have questions about how much Duke he watches. Because he keeps coming, like he does like one every like couple weeks. And he comes in saying the same stuff he did last time, which wasn't true then and isn't true now. And I just don't get it. Like in terms of... He's really convinced that Duke gives up the dribble drive into the lane. Um, their uh, their guards give that up, and they don't. They never have. That is not a thing. So I'm not sure what's going on there. He keeps on saying that. And another thing, all the commentators, for some reason, are convinced that Matthew Hurt is like the most physical guy, and he's so much more than his ability to just shoot threes. He's really not. Eventually, he can hopefully become more, especially as he gets stronger. Matthew Hurt, that's his big problem. He's not physical. So it's it's very odd that uh, broadcasters keep praising it. They'll like see him make like one play inside and be like, "That's exactly why he's he, like he, he gets limited in terms of how he's described as just a shooter." And like, no, that's kind of what he is. So anyway, minuses as I mentioned, the long stretches and close games with nobody really being able to score an initial half court offense outside of Vern. I mean, there was the first ten minutes of the game, and then around kind of around the the range of like. 15 minutes left to five minutes left in the second half. I mean, they are really dependent on uh, transition 
and offensive rebounds to get second chances, and that's why it was so big for Carey to get to have a big offensive rebounding game and to Cassius to always be fighting in there for offensive rebounds, Jack White to be getting huge offensive rebounds. I mean, I even got to give, like, Goldwire. I mean, he won't get them all, but he gets a couple, and props to him. I mean, he, he, I mean he's, he's a scrappy little guy. Little guy. I mean, it's always kind of... It, it's it's funny whenever we say that because, I mean, he's taller than many. He's taller than, like, probably the average person. But anyway. Um, all right. Uh, Cassius, he is a minus on defense. Because Adiasi Tony, huge game. I mean, he had a huge game last season versus NC State. And I think he had one against North Carolina and then kind of vanished. There was only, like, two random games. He's kind of been a little bit up and down, hasn't done much. I think two games ago he had a big game. I believe it was against Notre Dame, but don't quote me on that. Or, no, I'm seeing it. Wait, no, that's the wrong game. It was against Boston College. Nope, that is the wrong game. I'm looking at Trey McGowan's. All right, so uh, Audiosi Tony, that was against it, – it was against, it was against Boston College, 16.7 of nine. Besides that, it's kind of – you never know what you're going to get from him, but he really broke out against Duke. So we'll see if it's kind of something which he can use – to uh, gain confidence forward, or if it's just one of those games. I know there's a lot of people who just like to think that everyone has their career game against Duke, but I, I think uh, what he got was well-deserved, but at the same time, if a guy is just going off, you've got to adjust him. I don't care what the game plan was initially about how Cassius was going to play, Tony. you got to adjust. you got to stop cheating over and, and laying off him. I know he wasn't a good three-point shooter coming into the game, but once a guy gets hot, it's like street ball, where it's just like he's just going to keep on going. And Cassius has got to adjust. It's the same way against Stephen F. Austin when he kept going in for those offensive rebounds and not rotating back in transition. It's like, dude, you got to adjust at some point. You just have to. So he did make the big stop at the end, but I think what I found frustrating is the fact that Tony wasn't beating him, really. I mean, there was a play where Cash just got backdoored, and that's something where he usually has uh, – you would just never see him that happen to him. But I think that's how much he was kind of concentrated on what else was going around, and you just got to recognize you don't have the help. So you, you got to be aware, and especially a guy that keeps getting hotter and hotter and pretty much carried Pitt on his back for a lot of the time. I mentioned how uh, players got to be more responsible to read and react within the offense. So I'm – Already that us. All right, so Vern, he was getting attacked. I mean, Pitt was doing everything possible to attack Vern on their offense, Duke's defense. If Pitt had a versatile power forward, Hurt would have been attacked even more than Vern. So, well, I can, I guess you can say the rotations, the defensive rotations, the communication, I think some are going to say, oh, it improved, it looked better. I'm not so sure about that. I just think Pitt didn't have quite the uh, guys with a skill set to take advantage of that. Uh, another thing that I will mention, the three-point... I've, I've used the word judicious mostly this season to describe how Duke is best when shooting three-pointers. I think when they get them within the flow of the offense, I really like it. They haven't been great in transition. That was mostly O'Connell. Um, and at times, uh, Wendell Moore, really rarely Wendell Moore, mostly O'Connell. But uh, in half-court... I really would like it to be within the flow of the offense, and I've given the stat of when they shoot over 23s, it's a pretty horrific percentage. And when they shoot under 23, in a game when they shoot under 23s, or maybe it's 20 or less, it's a much better percentage. And I think, like, when they have those crazy games, like against Miami, the, the first half, it makes people believe it was kind of like 
uh, Notre Dame and uh, Virginia last season, Florida State, those random outlier games, which I think sometimes we think prove something. And sometimes you just got to say, hey, we it was, that was great. It was awesome. But I don't I don't think it's really a narrative worth saying in terms of, hey, Duke's fixed its shooting problems. They they are who they are to a point in terms of who can make outside shots and who should be shooting outside shots and when they should be shooting outside shots. So if they have one of those crazy halves where everything keeps going down, you just got to kind of give them applause, but say like at the same time, it almost can, uh, I think actually Kay mentioned it. He's mentioned what I've been mentioning all season. Um, he said it's fool's gold. That's the term he used because you, I mean, the old term of live and die by the three, I think that gets overblown. But at the same time with this Duke team, you you don't want them to keep on shooting. Then you get to the point where nothing is going on. They're just kind of chucking. And that's how Duke has lost a lot of NCAA tournament games in uh, in Duke's history. So, I mean, even Miami, how good they were shooting in the first half. They didn't. I mean, it was a blowout. So it's kind of you take it with a grain of salt. But they, they didn't shoot threes well in the second half. And then uh, against Pitt, I think, I mean, they what, they shoot like 7 of 14 or something in the first half and hurt hit a quick three coming out of the second half. And then really they were just, they couldn't hit anything until Cassius hit a three late in the game. I believe they were two of 12. So it was that they hit the first and they might've hit the last and that was it. So, and you got to understand when they're, when they're making those threes in the first half, when they came within a rhythm, like Jack White, when Trey kicked out to Jack White for a three, great rhythm. Uh, Trey hit one in great rhythm. But uh, Goldwire hit one in great rhythm. Goldwire also hit two with no rhythm, which you're just kind of at that point in time when guy, when defenses are sinking in. It's, it's tough to see him take that because I think anyone who's played knows how hard it is to kind of just stand there, watch everyone kind of look at you with no intent to come out and guard you. Or maybe not everyone, but people who can't shoot. Um, that's actually all I could do. I really I don't have much skill besides shooting. Uh, I was like a poor man's J.J. Redick if, if – uh, Broke man's J.J. Redick. I mean, that's it. he hit two shots like that, and props to him. I mean, it's really tough to do that. But then the second half, I mean, how many possessions where he had the ball, and he's either got to shoot or he's kind of a waste of space in there, on offense at least, and he shot and he missed. And then Jack White, he's shooting in the second half, he missed. Cassius, he can make threes, but you don't want him as like a consistent three-point shooter. I think he was like something like one of four. So when you when you get used to like oh hey we can we can make threes we're a three point shooting team no keep attacking keep cutting to the rim because the biggest issue for me on offense in the second half was the lack of really off ball action cutting the rim they did not help Vernon Carey nearly enough let me let me ask did you hear or did you read that Coach K Andy did you read that he said Duke was tired uh, I did not see that. That's kind of an interesting. Yeah, he talked about how Duke was tired against Pittsburgh in the second half. So sorry to interrupt. Did you have a? Do you want to add some more? I just think that's an interesting comment, um, especially when there's depth that isn't being used. It's just, yeah, I don't know. It just seems like a very interesting comment. There's no real reason for them to be tired, especially when there's guys on the bench that obviously some of them might have played themselves out of getting time, but yeah. All right, so uh, who did Duke play last Saturday? Last Saturday? Mm-hmm. 
That was the last game they played, right? No, they didn't play anyone. So why are they tired? Like, uh, so, yeah. sorry if that sounded like I was trying to like trick you or whatever. No, but no, um, no. yeah, yeah. I mean, I just don't understand why they would be tired. And as you mentioned, they they're they're using only six guys. So they have more. I mean, this is the same group that K want to sub in and out like almost a hockey rotation. And you can see how it's already been. I mean, this was the issue against Stephen F. Austin, where they just just the same. It almost gets stale in the second half when it's just the same guys. So I think and it gets stagnant, especially on offense. So I like you got to just keep on getting guys in. I mean, with Baker. That's the first game I've seen where it really looked like it was in his head when he was shooting. He kind of pushed the shot where he's thinking about – and I, I'm not trying to be an armchair psychologist, but he might be thinking about being pulled, and that's not the way you want to uh, be in there. So let's take a look at when we think about uh, Pitt, how to match up against them. Pitt came into the game where we know that they, they don't have much depth at all. They don't have big rotation. And they came into the game ranked bottom 10 in the country in press offense when the, when the defense is pressing them. They turned the ball over on 26 of 85 possessions. Turnover percentage ranked bottom five in the country. So they are terrible against the press. Duke's press defense came into the game ranked number three out of teams who actually press more than once in a blue moon. I think it was like more than like 30 possessions or something. Duke's press like a 280, something like that. And uh, Duke ranks number two in forced turnover percentage from the press. So in the, the number three was in terms of points per possession. The number two was in terms of forced turnover percentage. So you've got a team who stinks against the press. You've got a team that is great pressing. So if you're coaching Duke, what would you try to do? Yeah, that's it seems obvious. It's funny that they didn't press. Kind of... A common theme throughout the season they have seemed great through the press and as you mentioned the stats back that up but we don't really see it for more than just a little stint um it's usually just used to maybe throw the other team off but it's never very consistent or it's not gone to multiple multiple times in a game when you press, you're going to give up a big play occasionally. I mean, it's kind of like uh, football if you blitz. So, I mean, but it's still, in five possessions, Pitt scored six points. So they actually scored more than a point per possession. But, the, I mean, they hit two of two field goals. Duke turned them over twice. So it's kind of you, you, you win some, you lose some. But at the same time, why only five possessions? I mean, that's that's the stat. It's it, it, I really don't understand why they didn't press more. Yeah, my only thought is maybe Coach K, like he said, he thought they were tired. But, but yeah, it, it does definitely seem like Duke should have at least tried the press a little more. Like you said, sometimes it's going to give up big plays, but at the same time you're going to get some big plays on the other side and give it a bigger sample size and you would just have to believe that it kind of works out in Duke's favor. All right, another thing, and this is just something that I'm not saying what Duke should have done. It's just something to consider that Pitt, um, against the zone, they rank number 289 in the country. There's 353 teams. They rank number 289. Duke hasn't really played the zone at all this season. I mean, it's funny because fun with, stat, fun with stats, you could, with small sample size, you can kind of look at it and make it seem like Duke stinks at zone because I think with teams that have played like 10 possessions, 
Duke would actually rank like I think there's only th- there's 304 teams that have played at least 10 possessions. Duke's played 15, so they actually they qualify and they're ranked like 300. So they're like the fourth worst team in the country in defense. But when you only have played 15 possessions in 20 games, like who cares? So they they played four possessions of zone against Kansas, allowing three points and. I mean, the, the game-to-game stats don't really matter. I mean, but the next 19 opponents, 11 possessions, 17 points, 6 or 7 field goals. So basically teams have made, like, all the shots. Like, six, I think it's 6 of 7 shots. But when you're only playing, like, one possession of zone a game, and typically, if I remember, it's, it's usually out of a timeout where it's usually off, like, a slob, a sideline out of bounds, and it's, like, one possession just to kind of get everyone set and, like, I mean, Stephen F. Austin, it was like the worst time ever that they actually played one possession of zone. And Stephen F. Austin hit like their second three of the game after like, I think they hit a three on their first possession. And the other, only other three was when Duke played zone on the only possession that they played zone all game. So that was wonderful. But bottom line, I don't think we know anything about Duke's zone defense, even if they've been practicing at all. And I'm not saying Duke should go to his own more, but it's a, it's a, like when you're playing a team that can't shoot, you know they can't shoot. And it's not like they have like a Vernon Carey who's, who's a dominant inside guy. So – and Duke struggles with uh, with rotations against the pick and roll a lot, uh, some back doors occasionally, some awareness issues. I don't know. It just seems like that could have been something to try. And Duke did not try it. They didn't play one possession of zone against Pitt. So – I don't know. I mean, these are just things where you look at the other team and what they're weak at in terms of pit. They're not good against the press and they're not good against zone. And it's just Duke didn't really try either. So it's just something to consider when everyone's saying like, oh, Duke just they didn't they didn't play with enough toughness. They didn't play with enough intensity. All the cliches, all that all that stuff when, when Duke has played a team where you would think that they would be able to handle them with a little more ease than they did. I think that's kind of what most gravitate towards. But there's bas- there's actual basketball going on, which you can look at the strategy and say, like, hey, they could have done something different. All right. So, uh, Vern, a little more about Vern. I, I, it would be great if he could protect the rim a little bit better. As I mentioned, teams are forcing him to guard outside and then block on the move. So that's a much tougher than hanging out inside and waiting, especially for a guy like Vern. So, but, uh, so non-conference games with multiple blocks, 7 of 11 games. So he was really having, having himself a block party in non-conference. There was only one game where he had zero blocks. ACC games with multiple blocks, only one of nine. AC games with zero blocks, three of nine. So he's really not protecting the rim much. So that would be something where you were just hoping teams are going to keep on trying to get him on the move. So hopefully, I mean, that's I don't want to put too much on Wendell Moore, but maybe his versatility and his ability to help weak side can help uh, allow Vern to stay more at the rim, a little more at home. I don't ever want him just standing next to there, but uh, I think – it would be a little more natural for him, and hopefully Duke could protect the rim a little a little better. Um, in terms of Vern shooting, he actually made a three. and Because it's funny, like Kansas was almost like Zion hitting his first uh, three against Kentucky, then going something like three of 18, the rest of non-conference. Then uh, as many saw, he went four, four from deep. His, his first game for the Pelicans, and uh, 
Now, I think he's gone 0 of 2 in the three games that followed. So, uh, Vernon non-conference, he was 4, 4 of 5. 2 of 2 against Kansas, 1 of 1 against Cal, 1 of 2 against uh, Michigan State, and 0 of 1 against Brown. In the ACC, the three he hit against Pitt was his first. He's 1 of 5. So, uh, that's something where I think we might have thought he would have offered a little more of an ability to hit from deep. I think as a trailer, he can occasionally, but it's not going to be what we saw against Kansas. So, I, I mean, in terms of his shooting motion, I don't think his shot, it, the point of release or how the motion looks or anything like that, I don't think this is really a Wendell Moore thing. It's just the fact that whether he's in the post or outside, he just starts the ball extremely low. So that takes longer. I mean, it's re- it's really that simple. He just re- he brings it low a lot, and when he's inside, then it's easy to strip. And when he shoots, it takes longer to bring up. And you don't want to mess with shooting motions and releases and all that stuff too much during a season. So I don't know. I guess this is just something where maybe over time he can get used to it. He did hit a step-back jumper from the baseline. That was impressive. But uh, uh, one other thing about Vern, his minutes are being made into a big deal. In my opinion, that's overblown. I won't discount his fitness and the general minutes being lower than others, but overall, he's played big minutes in close games pretty much whenever he hasn't been in foul trouble. Like, all right, so let's go down uh, Kansas, first half foul trouble, eight minutes, but second half, he played 17. Georgia State, that was a close game, 34 minutes. Georgetown, 28 minutes, first half, 15, a little foul trouble in the second half, 13, but Stephen F. Austin, 32 minutes. Winthrop, that, here's, here's the one thing, like, I can't quite remember why he only played 22 minutes, 12 in the first half, 10 in the second half, because he only had one foul. I think that was probably a matchup-based decision by Case, similar to Virginia Tech, because Winthrop, they had a bunch of smaller guys who would spread you out and shoot. For, uh, Virginia Tech, 15 minutes, 11 in the first half, 4 in the second. As I mentioned, that was matchup-based. The only game I think is a black mark is uh, Georgia Tech, because he played 11 minutes in the first half. with uh, He had some early foul trouble, 14 in the second half. But I think uh, he could. He should. I think he could have played more there. So I don't know if that was something where uh, maybe fitness was an issue. But I mean, that's just one game. Clemson, 31 minutes, even with the first half foul trouble, would have played more. Louisville, 23 minutes, 15 in the first half, eight in the second half. I think eight second half minutes. That was on the coaches. I explained that in the Louisville pod. He should have been out there. I don't understand why he wasn't. And then Pitt, 35 minutes. So in terms of everyone making it a big deal, and I should stop saying everyone because I think it's just some some of what I have seen written, and that's just it doesn't represent everything. But the 35 minutes he played against Pitt, I think that's great. But I, I, I think a lot of it has been based on sometimes foul trouble, which he's been getting. He's he work he hopefully is working on, or just Duke blowing teams out. So how much did you did you know that uh, the 35 minutes were his? season career high and do you did you think that was a big deal do you think it's a big deal am i kind of looking at it from maybe a uh an incorrect perspective no i no sorry no i don't i don't think you're being i think you're being completely right on the money especially with some of the games where duke's blown teams out it's just it always feels like he's in during the big moments except for the few games you mentioned um outside of that it feels like He's in when it matters most, and he's he's not really being subbed just because he looks tired or anything. It's more matchup based, but yeah, I don't I don't make a whole lot of him not playing that much. All right, so I think we've mentioned most of it. I 
it, the wild thing is, uh, I mean, I didn't read any articles, but like a lot of the headlines I saw really centered around Kay and his interaction with the Duke fans. To me, this is just like, you know what? Like they shouldn't have been doing that because like any anytime fans chant anything about any one or any person on the opposing team, typically, I'm not saying always, but typically it's generally thought to be something negative. Um, so they, they shouldn't have done that. Kay was confused. And that's, pr- I, I, I really, I have a tough time seeing where any other, what else is involved in this and what is a big deal. I don't know. Once again, I'll, I'll ask from your perspective, is, is there more? Because again, I said I didn't read about it. Is there something else that I am missing about that? No, I don't think it's a big deal. Um, and Coach K has apologized multiple times, saying that he didn't hear it right exactly. I think I read today he even had the tenters in a meeting where he told them that, or just kind of apologized to them and said exactly what I just said, where he didn't he didn't understand what they were saying or misheard them. But yeah, I don't make a whole big deal of that really. I think that's largely being used as clickbait. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I'm just trying to see it from different perspectives. And I don't know, this is the type of thing where it's just like, I don't get it. <laughs> like, and maybe I'm just, my my mind, my brain isn't wired that way. And I'm not saying that in a good or a bad way. Like, I don't get why that's interesting to anyone. Like, I don't think the fans should have said it because when it's so loud in there, it's really tough to understand what anyone's saying. So let's not, how about let's not risk it. But at the same time, Coach K, like, don't freak out. And I, and I think that's really it. So I, I don't, I, I don't really, I don't know. I don't know what else to say. Yeah. At the same time, I think either way, that's if, if you, if the fans were saying something negative towards Capel, it's like, then the media would be erupting about that and they'd be making that headlines. And that, it just feels like there's not really a winning situation there, but. Yeah, well, I, I can't. Coach imagine, K definitely. Over- I can't imagine the fans saying negative things about Cable, but yeah, you never know. If if that did happen, which obviously did not, um, I think that would be in a similar situation where the media would just blow that out of the water. Yeah, I mean, if they did that, I would probably agree with the media doing that because that would just, I mean, like if they, I mean, that would be insane. Like Cable has been amazing for Duke as a player, as a as an assistant, and now now I'm imagining things that would, that would just never happen. So it it really it doesn't even matter. But I do the, if the fans did that, yeah, the media I feel like would be right. I was just gonna say my only point in saying that is really that in Coach K's head, if he did hear it wrong, that that's what's going through his head. That's what he actually thinks is happening. So that that was my reason for for bringing that up. Oh yeah, and he said that he would rather kind of take the risk and go too hard. On, on the fans for what possibly they were saying then and and protect Capel, who means a lot to him, obviously, then do the reverse and just kind of be like, oh, I hope they're not saying that. So, yeah, I, I, can, I can see it from from his point of view and from the fans' point of view, just don't don't make up weird chants, but whatever. They did do a great thing in terms of uh, Duke's first offensive possession of the game. They chanted Kobe's name. That, that, was, that was a really cool thing, and the Duke... Players, they were made, they wore, uh, I think half the team wore a number eight. The other half of the team wore number 24. They were given um, uh, warm up jerseys to kind of 
pay respects to Kobe Bryant, who unfortunately passed in the uh, horrific helicopter crash along with his daughter and uh, seven other people who were on board who it's it's just a, re a really sad event i'm going to record a uh a dbc deep dive on kobe but uh it, it was good just to see how or not good it was in in a way it, it was just nice to see everyone pay their respects because you could just see how much kobe he just influenced everyone and not just in the game of basketball but uh like it kind of, I mean, he really crossed into every sort of uh, aspect of life. He really affected people and just how the kind of his second chapter. And I think it was, it was, it was justifiable for them to pay, their, uh, to pay their respects to him and for them to wear a Jersey honoring him. And it's just a uh, really tragic and uh, the saddest thing is for, his wife Vanessa and uh, the uh, everyone related to all the all the people who uh, unfortunately uh, passed in the helicopter crash, and I will mention all of their names in um, when I do the deep dive because I'm not trying to list them as just kind of the others. I think they are as important as anyone, and it should never be about somebody just because they're a celebrity, but that doesn't changed the fact that Kobe impact had a huge impact on many lives and uh, yeah he, he will be missed but uh, that pretty much uh, I would say sums up my thoughts on the pit game so they will be going to Syracuse and uh, Ken Palm Syracuse is ranked 51 they are 13 and 8 either way going to a dome I think that gets a little overblown in terms of how that affects shooting but it, I would say the Carrier Dome is definitely different than uh, most places you will play, so you got to be prepared. It is it is a different world there, and who knows what will happen. But hopefully Duke will come out with a win. Hopefully they will come back. They will be BC, and K will get have his 500 career victories in the ACC. Again, that is regular season and uh, postseason combined in the ACC tournament. So is there anything else uh, used from uh, Duke Pitt? Perhaps you saw it in a different way. Did you see anything about the Miami game, or is there anything you want to add on to uh, my thoughts about Pittsburgh? Um, no, not necessarily. Uh, the one thing I'll just reiterate is you mentioned kind of the unsustainability of some of those first half made threes. Um, I counted, I rewatched, it was five, five threes they shot where it was just staring down their defender, waiting and shooting without rhythm. What do you think they shot on those in the first half? Um, How many do you think they made? I mean, if I'm remembering, I mean, I, Goldwire made two of them, where we're basically they were just leaving them. Um, so I would say two. Uh, you said they shot five. If, I, if I'm going to take a guess, I would say three or five. I saw they made four out of five. Yeah, I mean, that's totally unsustainable. It's just not going to happen. It's not something you can rely on, obviously. it's Rhythm is can't be... It can't be emphasized enough when shooting threes. It, it matters, and like you said, it's it's a scary thing just staring down. It's not something anyone feels comfortable doing. I remember I was texting with you last night. I'm, my biggest takeaway from the game, which 
you never know how you first see it initially. It may change when, when, you, when you watch more specifically, when you look up the stats, all, all kinds of when everything kind of comes together to give you a better feeling of the game. But I said that, was, that game was pretty much the blueprint of how Duke, if they are going to get upset in the NCAA tournament, that's how it'll happen. It'll happen with an over-reliance on threes, which basically just entering the ball into Vern and just watching, not doing anything. And then the other team, they kind of, they get they get on a roll. One guy kind of goes off. That's what generally happens. I think not, not against Mercer. Mercer was just a weird one. But, like, in general, when a lower-seeded team pulls a big upset, somebody usually goes off. And that would be out of, out of I'm sorry, I am not pronouncing his name. What is it, Adabasi Tony? Hopefully I'm pronouncing it right. No disrespect if I'm not. Sorry, he was amazing. So credit to him. Hell, hell of an athlete. I'll be interested to see if his success continues moving forward. But, yeah, that's what generally happens. So, I mean, it's when the other team starts playing free, you got a team like Pitt. They they stink. They, they were horrible in transition, and yet they're being really efficient in transition um, against Duke. Duke's defensive transition has actually been really bad the last uh, – about five games. They've allowed over a point per possession. That's just something you got to rotate back better. It's as simple as that. And you got to avoid these silly turnovers. But the, I mean, these are just cliche saying, Oh, don't, don't do stupid things. I mean, that's basically what I'm saying. It goes deeper than that. But I think that's something maybe um, depending on what I'll see in the next two games, I can go into with the, I guess, again, it'll be one game past the halfway point of the ACC season, but after BC, maybe I'll record something a little deeper leading up to uh, the second half, uh, leading up to the Saturday-Monday Carolina-FSU uh, matchups, which will guarantee be uh, really, really intense. I'll say it one more time. I do not care what Carolina's record is. That game will be well, well, I mean, who knows? Maybe Cole Anthony will even be back for that. I keep hearing that, hey, he may be back at any time. So maybe he may be coming back. Wendell Moore may be coming back. So, I mean, Carolina could be a different team. They've, they've been looking better recently. It doesn't mean they'll necessarily be uh, an NCAA tournament team, but they're getting better, and they have talent, and that's something to watch out for. All right, so uh, that, that sums up Duke Pitt. Heading into Q's and BC Saturday and Tuesday before we, uh, what some people say officially begins college basketball season, the first Duke Carolina matchup. So, Andy, thanks so much for joining me. It was a lot of fun. And uh, yeah, I will be back with uh, pl- plenty of more Duke Basketball Corner episodes. Just a friendly reminder if anyone wants to join me anytime, you can be as involved as you want to be. And you can kind of go through the experience and choose to get more involved as we go as we go on and get some chemistry, or you can immediately become involved. All I'm looking for is just someone to join me, so I'm not talking to a computer. And I I've been doing this for years, so I feel like I'm very easy to work with. Maybe that is totally wrong. Maybe I am a horrible person, but I would like to think I am not that way. Reach out to me if you are interested. Andy did, and hopefully, Andy, you enjoyed your time. Hopefully, you will be back. So, for the Duke Basketball Corner Podcast, I am Adam Comer, and I will be talking to you soon.